Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 231, A Quiet Air of Mastery. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a astrologer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket officer. The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the Baker Street Irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, I know you, you have a quiet air of mastery about you, don't you? Well, that's usually why I crack the window in here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it's for that reason. Yeah, I like to get a little fresh air in from the outside, so my quiet air of mastery doesn't uh, intrude on the sensibilities of those there, I'm surrounded. There you go. Well, I've got a I've got a paperweight around here to protect me from such sensibilities. Um, and you know, the the beautiful thing about my mastery is it's completely silent over here. <laughs> I don't know that there is any air of mastery here. So. Well, we, this is... Is a, there such a thing as a quiet vacuum of mastery? Um, I would aspire to that. I, I would exist in one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This this is a very different episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, and it's for a good reason. Um, as many of you know, Mike Whalen, who is the former or was the former head of the BSI, passed away in recent months. And we thought we might honor Mike in a, a different way. We've obviously interviewed him here. We've had previous episodes uh, where Mike joined us. You can find those in the show notes if you'd like to go back and listen to Mike. He was a, a wonderful supporter of this show, and we certainly supported everything that he was trying to accomplish with the BSI. So it's our hope that you will enjoy this very different approach that we're taking to telling Mike's story. And it's not us that's telling it. We enjoined the assistance of a number of other irregulars who knew Mike fairly well. So it's a wonderful array of voices and perspectives about Mike's life. We will not have a canonical couplet in this episode, so please don't go searching for one after the interview is, or after the um, 
uh, remembrance is over. Uh, that means you'll have another two weeks to give your answers to the canonical couplet for episode 230. So, with that in mind, we thank you for your support this year, and stay tuned now for our tribute to Mike Whalen. People know Mike as, as Wiggins, the head of the BSI. That comes with a lot of... Uh, presumptions and a lot of assumptions and there have been a lot of people who've had that completely wrong because they don't it does not afford them the opportunity to actually know him as a person mike whalen was a giant in the sherlockian world that could be said about his physical stature as well as his contribution to the baker street irregulars but he was much more than a sherlockian to paraphrase Samuel Johnson, when a man tires of Mike, he tires of life. We actually also have lives aside from Sherlock Holmes. Well, first and foremost was was always basketball. Sometimes we lined up for tickets for Broadway. He thought nothing of driving 800, 1,000 miles just to go someplace. He just liked it. We talked a lot about swimming. Uh, I also discovered early on that Mike was fascinated by uh, explorers because he was very interested in exploration. Mike was intimately familiar with the way universities work in a way that normally you would think a university administrator or a longtime faculty member would be. Of course, there was family. He loved his grandkids like crazy uh, and loved to talk about them. He loved college basketball. He loved friends. He loved his family. He was just a really good, loyal friend. Mike Whalen found joy in many things, and seven members of the Baker Street Irregulars join us today to tell it best as they saw it from up close. They are Peter Blau, Ross Davies, Stephen Doyle, Les Klinger, Hartley Nathan, Otto Penzler, and Steve Rothman. Since it's a prevailing theme, let's start with Mike's love of basketball and other sports. Steve Doyle, a member of the illustrious clients of Indianapolis and fellow Indiana resident, is, as required by Indiana state law, a Hoosier fan. Mike was a big, huge basketball fan, loved Indiana University, and um, he had season tickets. They, they can be kind of hard to get, you know. So I remember um, because Indiana is a basketball school, and I remember once or twice a year he would call me up and say, hey, I've got an extra ticket. You want to go with me? And that was always great because it's just him and me driving down to Bloomington in the car. I got about an hour and 20-minute drive, and – we're solving all the world's problems. Sometimes it was about Sherlock Holmes and things going on in our community. Other, most of the time, it wasn't. You just drive down and, you know, stop somewhere, get a pizza or something and go to the basketball game. And, you know, to see Mike cheering for the Hoosiers was, uh, was great. It was, it was really, it was, this, is a side, this is a side you don't see very often. Before he started the Mysterious Bookshop and the Mysterious Press, Otto Penzler was a sports journalist. So, 
it was only natural that his conversations with Mike turned to the world of sport. Mike and I talked a lot about swimming, as it curiously enough. Uh, when I went to the University of Michigan, I was on the sports uh, paper, the, 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 uh, the Michigan Daily, and the first sport when you're a freshman, you don't get to cover the football game. You get to cover wrestling, track and field, and swimming. And I got to know quite a bit about swimming. Ironically, for a guy named Otto, he was never interested in auto racing. But once Mike moved to Indianapolis, it was unavoidable. He invited Carolyn, my, uh, my, my second uh, wife, the love of my life, um, and me to Indianapolis, to the Indianapolis 500. He uh, had great seats right opposite Gasoline Alley. Now, I've, I was a sports writer for many years, and uh, there are sports that I deeply love. And there are sports that mean absolutely zero to me. Soccer being one and auto racing being another. And I thought, well, you know, there's something fantastic about the Indianapolis 500. The, you know, it's so iconic that I thought this, this has got to be fun. So we, uh, so we drove together and we went to his house. He, he, uh, then took us in his car, he and Marianne. And Carol and I in the back seat, and we drove to the Indianapolis 500. And I don't know if your listeners pay much attention to uh, the Indianapolis 500. They may not know that the uh, people get excited about 100,000 people show up for a football game. Indianapolis 500 has 500,000 people who come. There's one road out, literally one road out. And I would say that if, if a marriage can survive getting home from the Indianapolis 500, it can, it can survive pretty much anything. It was, it took about, I'm going to guess somewhere between five and six hours to get out half a million people leaving on a single road. They, they only use it twice a year for the time trials and then for the race itself. And the race was really actually exciting. Anyway, uh, it got very exciting in, at the end. And uh, we were driving home. And Mike and Marianne are two of the sweetest people I've ever known. And they started to have a fight about something. I'm sure it was trivial. I'm sure it would absolutely meant nothing. But it became heated. And we're sitting in the back, Carol and I. And try to placate. And neither one of them would pay even the slightest attention. They were too busy fighting. And, it, and, and I've never seen either of them uh, in anything other than this happy, friendly, outgoing, warm, loving people. Except this fight, which lasted for probably two hours. <laughs> they were arguing. Um, but, but it, tried, it tried the patience of, of pretty much everybody. Ross Davies, who's responsible for the BSI's conferences, had a long road trip experience with Mike and Mike's wife, Marianne, as they traveled from Washington, D.C. to upstate New York. His summation of the time in the car together 
and the logistics in heading to the country and finding their way back, and how Mike and Marianne work together, is a microcosm for how they handled the logistics of the BSI weekends for many years. So we had a bunch of maps, we had an unreliable GPS, we had various people's memories and knowledge of where we were going, and I sat in the back seat, sort of in the middle. I was not in a car seat, okay, but I was in the back seat by myself, and I, so I could sort of, I was between Mike and Marianne and back a little bit, and they they basically talked their way through this unknown, partly known, unfamiliar, interesting territory uh with this this kind of good-natured even-keeled exploring of each other's knowledge of this stuff and you know there you know occasionally the voices would rise a little bit right but they would never argue right and occasionally they would quiet down a bit but the car was never quiet right and this is the cool part of it right they they were they were so good at collaborating that and I was I was actually keeping track of this from the beginning because I was always ready to trying to be prepared for when we ended up in some place that we did not intend to be. And um, Marianne was the the driver, right? We never took a wrong turn. We never got lost, uh, and it wasn't because anyone was sure of exactly where we were where we were headed. It was never because anyone had all the information. It was because. They collaborated beautifully and they knew enough to get along. And, um, you know, sort of reflecting back on, on the time, you know, working with them and spending time with them on various things. I think in a way that really sort of mundane experience epitomized the way Mike worked, um, and the way Mike and Marianne worked together. They, you know, basically they had enough knowledge and enough trust in each other and enough happy willingness to collaborate and disagree and come to agreement and so on and so forth, that everything just ran weirdly smoothly. Everything happened on schedule. We were never late for anything. Uh, and so I think navigating that minivan from Washington, D.C. to Nalaka and then back to Philadelphia uh, is probably a good microcosm for the way... Mike and Marianne lived their lives and the way the Baker Street Irregulars survived and thrived for decades. We ought to spend a little time recognizing the wonderful partnership between Mike Whalen and Marianne Bradley. The two were married for 44 years, and it's almost impossible to imagine them as separate entities. Mike and Marianne, and Mike and Marianne, as I'm sure has come through in other interviews, Mike and Marianne is really just one word, okay, because they they belong together, you know, uh, and they both knew that, uh, and it man did it work. Outside of the wonderful logistics collaboration, particularly for the BSI weekend, the pair opened their home to many friends in the Sherlockian world with a sense of hospitality and warmth, things you'd find in a large family. It, it really does have sort of almost a uh, South Downs estate turned into a fine hotel kind of neighborhood. The Whalen Bradley Arms or something like that. 
Les Klinger was one of those guests. They were wonderful hosts. Um, and, uh, you know, we just always had a good time. Mike and Marianne never believed in Uber or taxis or things like that. If you were coming to Indianapolis, they were going to pick me up at the airport. And it's funny when Marianne, um, asked me to come speak at the memorial service, I, course said I would be honored to do that and made plans to fly there and I was thinking to myself where am I going to stay I've never stayed at a hotel in Indianapolis and uh, I was speaking to her and asked her for some hotel recommendations and of course she said absolutely not you're staying at the house so uh, I I and two other friends of hers uh, of friends of Mike's longtime friends of Mike's uh, stayed at the house during the memorial service. Typical Marianne. And Otto got the full treatment early on. I was going on a book buying trip in the Midwest. He was still live, living in Cleveland. And uh, he said, well, come by. Um, we'll, we'll go to dinner. And uh, Marianne Whalen, uh, now Marianne Whalen, Marianne Bradley at the time, uh, was living with him. They, they weren't married yet, but they were living together in sin, as I like to point out to them very quick, very quickly. Uh, and we wound up talking so long and, and drinking so much that I wound up spending the night. They, they had a lovely guest room, although I, if it was too lovely, I think they gave me their bedroom and then slept on a couch somewhere else or something. It's the kind of thing that they would do. And uh, the next morning, and I've joked with Mike about this for more than 40 years, Marianne brought me breakfast in bed. He had gone to work. He had to go to work. And she brought me breakfast in bed. I mean, really. Uh, it, it was one of, it's still one of my favorite memories. And, and really, I don't think a year ever passed where I didn't remind him that his bride brought me breakfast in bed. <laughs> Mike's job took him on the road frequently, and he used it to his advantage. He loved traveling, particularly with friends or to meet up with friends. Hartley Nathan remembers some of those trips. I started uh, first meeting Mike when I was serving Myers, president of the bootmakers of Toronto in the mid-1970s. He was living in Cleveland and came to Toronto to attend some of our meetings. Marianne, Mike... Marilyn and myself met annually in New York and at Philly for the Copper Beaches. And uh, this foursome has uh, continued in other BSI functions. Mike and Marianne stayed at our house during Silver Blaze in July 2013. And uh, in 2017, Mike suggested we to Indiana and we drive to Dayton the trips we've taken together and I consider we consider ourselves very lucky to have friends like that. Peter Blau recalls how Mike's international visits as head of the BSI were the perfect match for his travel bug and how it had been a rare occurrence previously. Edgar Smith was was after the war was able to actually get on an airplane and go have dinner with the, the Sherlockians in Denmark. And that was a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal for them. And, and oh my God, you know, the head of the BSI is going somewhere else. And uh, he would go, he would go all the way up to Westchester County to have dinner with the five orange pips and things like that. 
But as again, as an executive of General Motors, he traveled and he got to San Francisco on business and uh, met with the scours and the Miley McGuire's. Julian was not much of a traveler. He did, we did get him to Washington once. Uh, Tom Sick was not much of a traveler. But Mike loved to travel. Uh, Mike and Marianne and I had so much fun uh, a few years ago when we did the three annual dinners in three different countries in one week trip. Uh, the, and it was, there were 13 of us on did that. Mike was truly in his element when he was walking the streets of New York City, particularly in one memory that Les Klinger shared. One of the stories that I think I told in the uh, the fest shrift that we did for Mike uh, was on some junket. We were walking around New York City, and first of all, I was always acutely aware that we looked a little odd. You know, here's this guy who was made not quite a foot taller than me, but you know, a lot taller. Uh, and we were always engaged in sort of some deep conversation or other as we were walking from wherever to wherever. And at some point we stopped where it was, the conversation was so intense that we sort of stopped on the street corner and we're looking at each other to sort of finish up whatever the point was. And some guy, this is in Manhattan, and some guy came up to us and said, excuse me, do you need directions? And we said to the guy, you know, oh, no, thanks. And he walked off and I looked at Mike after that. We both just kind of said, are we in Manhattan? Is that a real New Yorker? No. While Mike may have been mistaken as a tourist on the streets of New York, his administrative skills were unmistakable. Mike was a um, uh, sort of a legendary person around here. He, he uh, within the Sherlockian circles here, he um, had revived the illustrious clients. Kind of, uh, we'd been in a sort of semi-dormant state for, as an organization for about 15 or 16 years. Upon getting back here, as he uh, had a habit of doing, he would show, he would move somewhere. And then um, if there were, if there was a Sherlock Holmes society to be revived, he would jumpstart it or he would just start a new one. And uh, I don't think people realize that there's probably a good number of clubs and organizations in our hobby community that owe a debt to him. You know, Mike, uh, I gather, was a very successful business. Um, he was a rescuer of companies. Uh, he would come in, build them up, and then move on. Uh, fortunately for us, he didn't move on with the BSI, but he took, he took an organization that, while vital, was not very businesslike and implemented a lot of new ideas. He'd been a... CEO of a number of companies. I mean, he couldn't not run a company. He retired three times, I think. Uh, wound up on the eastern shore out here and uh, found a, a company that made swimming pools, wasn't doing very well, so he just bought it and it turned it into one of the top swimming pool manufacturers in the country and 
uh, got it going really good and then gave it to the employees <laughs> and retired again. But it was Mike that did so much to make the BSI what it is now. It's a business operation. It's, it's a big deal. Well, Mike had some very firm ideas about how the BSI should change. He wanted it to be a literary society, which I think is fascinating because that's how we started back in the 30s and the 40s. It was a bunch of people in the literary world, friends of Christopher Morley, uh, writers and things like that, who, who were members of the Three Hours for Lunch Club or the Grill Prancer Club and the Baker Street Regulars. Mm-hmm. And now Mike Whalen brought in authors and playwrights and, and really started paying attention to people writing things again. This transformation was beyond the power of a single person. Mike knew that he couldn't run it as a one-man operation, as Julian Wolf had. Nor did he have the secretarial pool that Edgar Smith had. So just as Sherlock Holmes's irregulars went everywhere, Mike picked a small army of volunteers to help with the BSI. He had a wonderful ability to draw people in to volunteer, to do things. Uh, volunteering uh, is, is, a, is a pliable word around Mike. He, he would say, you, uh, this is what I want you to do. You, you want to do this, right? And I don't know how anybody could turn him down. Sometimes there was a job that needed to be created. And then, and, and, you know, Mike had a, a talent to recognize that as well, you know, and, um, and then find the person. Any good executive has to be good at is identifying people who can do something and persuade them to do it. And the one, the one really great thing about Mike uh, was that if he picked the wrong person, if it didn't work, he didn't take it personally. He just picked somebody else. You know, that, that was, it just kept going. And when it did work, boy, did it work. Largely because those who Mike chose for the roles were capable, but also because they took it seriously, just as seriously as they would if they were being paid to do a job. And Mike gave them the autonomy to do that job. Uh, he trusts you. He trusts you to do a good job. And I think everybody who did who worked with him for him uh, wanted to do that. Wanted to make. Wanted to recognize and honor that sense of trust that he had in you. Mike approached the two Steves, Rothman and Doyle, about taking on responsibilities around the Baker Street Journal. First, Steve Rothman. I got a phone call out of the blue. It was in uh, 1999 in the spring. And Mike called up and said, so, Steve, after some bits and pieces, um, would you like to be um, editor of the Baker Street Journal? I said, hmm, well, that's something um, that I never expected to be offered. Um, and I, I asked some questions. I said, you know, can I think about this some? And so I said, let me talk it over with Janice because um, it's going to affect both of us. And I did. 
And we did, and we went back and forth. I probably had one or two more phone calls with Mike about this, you know, and to understand what he expected and everything else and to get an idea of how much autonomy I would be given. I knew Mike, um, and I felt reassured enough. And so we, I said, absolutely. But largely he left me alone as editor. The only thing at first he said is, when it comes to writing the obituaries, talk to me before you assign them, because sometimes there'll be some hidden animosities or something like this that you might not be aware of. I think he came to me at one point because he and I had been talking, maybe on one of those basketball trips or something. And I said, um, he would ask me things like, um, so what do you think about this? Or, you know, And I do remember one day he asked me about the journal, just about it's, how is it, you know? And I said, oh, I think the journal is, you know, I played all the, it's an institution. It's the, you know, it's the blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, like, could it look better? I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it could, you know, because that's why, that's why he was having us do book covers. He just likes that we have that ability in our toolbox. So, so some time passed. And probably, he probably was thinking about it, thinking it over or something. And then, um, and then at some point he said, um, he, he kind of worked this way. He said, Hey, can you come over Saturday afternoon? I want to, I, I got some things I want to talk to you about, which was always, always at first kind of felt like oh, I'm getting called into the principal's office, but, <laughs> but you know, I didn't know him as well early, you know, but you know, after a while I was like, okay, he, he just needs a sounding board or something, you know? And so I remember going over and, um, you know, we're sitting there in our living room and he, he said, I, I was wondering if you would be, think about taking on the role of publisher uh, of the journal. He said, you obviously have done a periodical in the past. You, you know about printing and publishing. Um, I think he'd be good at it. Would you take it on? I had to think about it for a little bit. And so I came back to him and I said, well, I'll be interested in doing it, but you got to, here's what I said. I go, there's a few things I'm going to need a free hand for me to want to do this. And of course, to his, quite understandably, he was like, well, what is that? You know, what? <laughs> I was like, I was like uh, so I just said, I just have some ideas about how, you know, I think we could make this thing um, certainly, you know, aesthetically, we can give it a brush up. But, um, you know, I, I have to do it incrementally because everybody's got an opinion about how the journal should look. And he just said, well, uh, that's why I'm, that's why I want you to do it. I'm going to you do, just do it. And so that's when I came on. And then eventually, as, as you know, as all you longtime journal subscribers know, um, that's when I started to introduce you know, incremental changes to the cover and to the binding and to the, you know, things like that. And, um, and Mike is always extremely supportive. He never second guessed me. Once in a while he said, I remember him saying, wow, that's a big change. Are you going to be able to keep that up? You know, stuff like that. But I was always like, oh yeah, sure. And he's like, okay, I, I think it looks great. Just 
you know, never second guessed me, never, never really told me I couldn't do anything and, um, and never made me, you know, like get permission because that was sort of our deal, you know? So I've always been really grateful for that. I respect that a lot in him that he trusted me enough to let me do that. So. But Les Klinger remembers feeling a little crowded at one point around the BSI's behind the canonical screen conference in Los Angeles. During the process, Les suddenly realized just why it was that Mike was so intimately involved in the project. He did delegate and he did let people run with the, run with the things that he had delegated to them as, as is evident today. I mean, he's, he himself talked about the statistics of how many Sherlockians were involved in how many activities that it was not a small little group of the secret council leading everything. It was a very widespread group of people with a lot of responsibility, but he could also drive you crazy. When uh, Michael Keane and I did the uh, conference at UCLA uh, back in the early mm, 2010s, I think, maybe 20, 2012, something like that is when we did it. Not only did Mike and Marianne drive out to Los Angeles to actually look at the facilities themselves, make sure that they were totally comfortable with it. You know, they wanted to know everything about what we were doing. And it used to drive us crazy. I mean, it was like, Mike, you know, we, we got it handled. It's okay. But then I finally figured out that this was just about, he only really did that with the projects that he was totally passionate about. And he didn't do it because he doubted you. He did it because it meant so much to him that he just wanted to see if he could help, see what needed to be done and make sure that it got done. He could be very firm, but he was kind. If, if Mike decided that he wanted something to happen a certain way, that it really needed to happen that way. And if it didn't, then uh, uh, he didn't like it. There's no question that Mike wanted to see things done a certain way, and that in his capacity as Wiggins, he was responsible for making decisions. It led to the benevolent dictator trope which really started with Julian Wolf, and Mike kind of winked at it. Julian Wolf was the, the first benevolent dictator. You know, the story being that he was introduced somewhere as the benevolent dictator of the Baker Street Directors, and he stood and said, and said, I am not a dictator. And he said, I'm not the dictator of the BSI. And he said, but if I were a dictator, I would be a benevolent dictator. He said, if I were benevolent. Benevolence was something that he did strive for, but he also, he loved the group corporately as well as the individuals in it. And he wanted the most from them in his letters. That's what he was trying to ask for was help us. The more you help us, the more you're involved, the more you'll like the group. And the more you like the group, the better it will be for you and all your fellow members. And for Sherlock in activities worldwide overall. And so that's what he was thinking of, and that's what he was aiming for with his benevolent dictatorship. But in the end, Mike took his advice and counsel to a number of people, and that informed his decisions. Most of my job, I think, uh, consisted of 
listening to Mike tell me what he was planning to do. And then my saying, uh, keep in mind that if you do A, then B is going to happen. So you need to, you need to think about what happens next. I mean, the trust is a perfect example of that. Um, the BSI trust, which is sort of in charge of the archive. I mean, Mike was always treated himself as one of the group of trustees. Um, he attended the meetings of the trustees, but he was not in charge. And I can't remember any specific instances where, you know, we sort of, he said black and we said white, but, you know, he viewed himself as just one of the idea persons, one of the trustees who had input. Um, that's a perfect example. And ultimately, of course, he ended up doing that with the BSI press as well, um, where he ceded tremendous authority to uh, Bob Katz, John Berquist, Michael Keane, and Steve Doyle over the years to make decisions about that stuff without running to consult Mike. Did he like to be kept informed? Sure. Did he appreciate having input? Absolutely. But he was far from a dictator about the things that he thought were going well. Like any good leader, Mike listened intently and he took a great interest in people. When he combined those skills, it resulted in more informed conversations. And it made people feel welcome at events, simply by showing them that he cared about them. I think that, uh, you know, people say Wiggins, he's, he was a very physically tall person. And he's um, heads this, what people think of as the mighty organization of the BSI. And they see him as un, maybe as unapproachable or, or unknowable and a little forbidding sometimes. But that was as far from the truth as it could be. Mike had a big heart and he cared about, he really cared about everybody in the organization. To, just to illustrate this, it was in 2001, somewhere in there. I really hadn't known Mike that long, right? I mean, I really didn't. I'd known a lot of other people around here in the Sherlockian world anyway a lot longer and I was I, I'd been in the hospital it, it, it was serious and there, there Mike and Marianne were they came to see me you know not everybody did and I just thought to myself well isn't that something they don't really know me as well as I might I might not have expected them to come see me but they did and um, you know you never forget you never forget that kind of thing and I think as time passed, it became, it, it really, I might have been surprised then, but I shouldn't have been surprised because that's just who he was. I, I think he could talk to anybody about anything. And if he didn't know a lot, he would ask questions, but he was, he was responsive. He was uh, interested. You know, he would get into uh, a conversation about any esoteric subject at all. And wouldn't blow it off. He would, he would listen and, and contribute in some ways, ask questions and, or whatever it took to keep the conversation going at a, at a high level and a friendly level. And it was a rare, uh, ability that I wish I had and I wish more people had. Partly Nathan again. And the other thing that amazed me about Mike was his knowledge of the people. He talks about different Sherlockians. 
and uh, Indians, he knew everyone in, but they were just amazing how personal he was with so many people. From two streams of his life, one was the corporate stream, where it, the more people you knew and, and knew their abilities, the better it was for you and for the company. And the other was, of course, his life in the various science. So he had gotten to know a great many people. He had always traveled around to lots of groups well before he was um, head of the Irregulars. He was a face that you saw when you went. Ross Davies remembers how Mike made him feel the very first time they met. I got invited to a, to a dinner and uh, I'm talking with someone after after, you know, at dinner when people are sort of milling around after, you know, things wrap up. And Mike Whalen, who I was, you know, who had been pointed out to me, and he walks up to me and sort of apologized for interrupting and says, I'm sorry to interrupt. My name's Mike Whalen. It's very nice to meet you. And would you autograph this for me? And he had a copy of a book I'd published that had a bunch of Sherlockian stuff in it. And, you know, I learned later that he was a he, he was assiduous about making sure that his his copies of things were properly inscribed, which you know has its own charm, right? But you know, stop and think about that for a moment. You know, he he walks up, he sought me out, a nobody, and then apologized for interrupting, and then asked for my autograph. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a, it's a culturally generous kind of thing to do. And what I then learned over the next couple of years as I became more involved. And eventually had a conversation about with this, with him about this practice, sort of, you know, in, in another context, you know, not, not at a weekend, but later is that sort of one of the things on his list at every BSI dinner was to seek out and introduce himself to every person for whom that was their first dinner. That's, that's the way he was. Uh, and so each of us at our first dinner, right, was, special to him in both sort of a procedural cultural way, but also in a personal cultural way, because once, once you know, that's the way he works, you could, and, and if you're interested in this kind of thing, you watch, you can see him walking around the room, basically with an armload of stuff under his arm, because he had something from everyone who had produced something because he was, that was, and he was not doing it in some sort of, again, some sort of mechanistic, cold blooded sort of way. This was, this was coming from his sort of his heart, his passion for this and his caring for the people who were going to be involved in this community. It's not it's he's not sharing information of about his name. He's sharing information about how he views his relationship with that other person. Mike Whalen walks up to me with something that I have created and asks me to customize it for him. He's saying something about how he values me and my work. One of the ways Ross saw this intent interest in other people was on the road trip to West Point, where they were seeking out Dr. Elizabeth Samet, professor of English and philosophy. An extraordinary human being, an extraordinary scholar, an extraordinarily thoughtful person about the armed forces and and you know the role of the, the military in society and so on and so forth, and also the uh for example and this should really resonate with with Sherlockian enthusiast she is the widely acclaimed you know sort of gloriously reviewed annotator of Ulysses S Grant's autobiography okay so she is a major figure in not only 
you know, literary study and military policy and all that kind of stuff, but also in Civil War history. Okay, uh, she's an amazing person, right? And so, I'm trying to get her to come talk to the Sherlock Holmes and the British Empire conference, right? Why? Because she wrote many years ago a stunningly cool essay for the New Republic about using Sherlock Holmes to teach her cadets how to think. So she is a student of Sherlock Holmes on top of everything else she does, right? And she, of course, she has a ridiculous schedule and da 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 And so I'm trying to get, you know, trying to enlist her in this thing. And she's she is a super nice person. So she's very willing to listen, but not so sure and so on and so forth. And um, I tell her we're coming up, you know, to take a look around and could she spare us a few minutes? And she says, sure. And so we arrange to meet her. Basically, clearly it's in a hallway. She's thinking in a hallway for five minutes between meetings so she can be polite, right? Because she's a really, really nice person. You can imagine what happens. She meets Mike and Marianne. Mike starts sort of in a, in a non-journalistic way, asking her questions about her work that make it clear that he's read it. And not read it in a sense of having read it in order to be prepared to ask her a couple of intelligent questions. He's asking her about the things he does not understand, right? Which, again, for anyone who spent any time with Mike, knows that he is a very curious, very open-minded wanting to learn kind of person. You know, basically like, like I guess like I, what I would mention is, you know, any admirable mind, right? It's filled with opinions and filled with openness. And Professor Samet finds a chair with a couple of other chairs nearby for us to sit down. <laughs> and before you know it, she's looking at her watch like, you know, I really do have to go now, right? Which I probably had a class to teach or something like that. But the way Mike was not so much prepared for the meeting as just naturally interested and engaged and deeply sort of sort of caringly curious, just, I don't know, radiated from him. Mike's impact on the Baker Street Irregulars was, in a word, profound. Not only did he touched the organization in every possible nook and cranny. But he created new functions and a new structure, including some significant elements that will endure. I asked some of our interviewees about Mike's legacy. Peter Blau takes the 30,000-foot view. I think it'll be the corporation, the organization. Uh, he, he turned this over to Mike Keene as a going concern. I mean, think about poor Julian Wolf. After Edgar Smith's funeral, a few of the guys in New York got together and said, what are we going to do now? And Julian said, well, well he'd retired early. And he said, he said I'll, I'll, I'll plan the annual dinner. And then he did. I mean, he was the commissioner forever. Uh, and he just did it. And uh, eventually, uh, he wisely decided it was time to turn it over some to Tom Sticks, who was, they decided to turn over. But Mike Whalen created an organization and did what every business, good at business executive should do, is bring people up who, who can deal with 
the boss being hit by a bus crossing the street. Uh, the one thing you can't do in business is have a company depending on one person. There's got to be people prepared. And and it was Mike Rayland who actually decided, well, we ought to have officers who, who can actually do something. And uh, turned over to Mike Keene something that's going. And uh, Mike Keene, I'm sure, will keep it going. Steve Rothman looks at the BSI Trust and Archives and what it means for people even beyond the realm of Sherlockians. I think setting up the trust in the archives, absolutely, beyond anything else. We've really gotten a good start, especially with gifts from uh, Glenn Marenka of papers and with gifts of material we were able to sell for a great deal of money from Costa Rosakis. These things and we formed a good group of people on the trust who were working hard. We formed good alliances with the people at the Lilly, which is an astounding library and um, lovely to be part of. But it's, it's a wonderful library with wonderful librarians who will be excellent shepherds for our material. Um, and this will allow scholarship, both the scholarship um there were air quotes there you couldn't see uh the scholarship of uh sherlockians and the scholarship of real people with university positions who will be examining our organization after all we're you know in shouting distance of a hundred years and 1934 so 2034 is almost upon us um and it will be good to see what we've done, how we've changed, what we've meant for Sherlock Holmes overall. So Mike mustered the finances and the material, and this is making a wonderful contribution for all of us. Otto Penzler's mind turns naturally to publishing and the BSI Press. Um, I think his ambition to grow the organization and what the organization did. And we, we published many more books during his tenure. Uh, the biggest, I mean, when I say we, I mean the BSI, of course. Um, uh, many more books than any of his predecessors, probably more than all of his predecessors combined. Uh, it was a very ambitious publishing program. Um, I was very proud. I love the manuscript series more than you could possibly know. They are, masterpieces of production. Uh, the, the people who work on that, uh, the, the Gasogene Press people uh, and others, uh, they do such a wonderful, wonderful job of producing those books. I sold my collection, uh, my, virtually my entire collection, uh, a few years ago at auction, uh, but I keep the manuscript series. Uh, they're just too wonderful to not have um, on the shelves. And Les Klinger enumerates all of the elements of the BSI that Mike touched, but brings it home with what really matters. Well, it depends on who you are, I guess. Uh, for the BSIs, it's the revolution. I mean, it was the change of, uh, from what wasn't much more, not that the, the journal was ever um, a weak element. The journal has always been one of the great strengths of the BSI. But that's all we had for a long time. And, um, pretty much through the Tom Sticks era, that was, that was the only real accomplishment, if you will, of the Baker Studio regulars. 
And um, I think Mike's greatest legacy is he perceived that we could do more to keep green the memory of the master and and be what we are, an educational organization. And that that could include conferences and books. And I think that's his legacy. And, and of course, the archives, the trust, that that uh, we were old enough to start paying to attention to our own history and hopefully learning from it. But um, so those three things, I think, are the great legacies that he left for the BSI that we're going to carry on for a long time. You know, I think outside the BSI, his legacy was that people loved him. And as long as those who knew him live, we'll remember him, we'll think of him, and he'll live on. I think Mike was very proud of it, what he had done and felt that he had found a good successor in Michael. And um, I'm sure he wished he could see another 20 years of what was going to happen. But uh, we all benefit from what he did and um, we all benefit from his friendship. He was fun to talk to. And that was that was a good part. Mike was interested in people, their welfare, their flourishing, their capacities, and so on and so forth. And so he was interested in almost anything that had to do with any of those things. And that was very nearly everything in the world. In that sense, he was, um, in some ways, very much like sort of what, what, I, what I think a lot of us think of as one of sort of the inside jokes in the Sherlockian canon itself, which is that Sherlock Holmes only kept the important things in his head. But the truth is that everything is important. So he was keeping every darn thing in his head. And so was Mike. He was an amazing guy. And he, he you know, he loved the, the Baker Street Irregulars. He, and, but even outside of that, he was a huge... Um, uh, he, he was a, a, a really good friend. He had a great sense of humor. He really valued loyalty, not just to him, but within him to people too. And man, it's hard to put in words, Scott. He, he was he was a, just a he was a person, and he wasn't one dimensional as the leader of the BSI. There was a lot to Mike. We haven't had a lot of leaders of the BSI, but Mike is going to be seen as a transformative leader of the BSI. I mean, really one of the great leaders of the BSI. And um, I think he transformed this group. And, you know, the BSI, you know, it's not the beginning and end of the Sherlockian hobby, but it still has a place and, and can still sort of inspire people and kind of chart a course in a way for the hobby. And, um, I think he was really uh, had a lot of foresight in kind of positioning the irregulars for the future. And um, you know, so, you know, we all owe him a huge debt for that, I think. Well, I have to tell you, Bert, in putting that, I, I guess you could say, story together, um, it, it was a challenge. <laughs> there was there was so much that was said about Mike. 
There were so many stories, and and really, we're even the the seven people that we gathered together. This is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what um, people had to say about Mike or the the memories that they shared. So it was uh, in some ways a challenge to, as, as any editor's job is, it's a challenge to decide what you're going to include and in what order. Uh, but the the bottom line is, Mike was a Renaissance man. He he had many many interests, and the thing is, I don't think any one of the interests that we've talked about or that that our guests talked about there were just surface interests. When Mike sunk his teeth into something, he really didn't let go. And it seemed like that was the case, not only with the topics that he was interested in, but with people as well. Well, and I think that, you know, you mentioned earlier, I think that's very true. You mentioned earlier at the start of this that, you know, we were looking to honor and remember Mike. And that certainly is Accurate. But, you know, the, the reason why this is important and why it's great to hear these voices and to hear these stories is that, um, you know, people, um, men and women are, are sort of different from other creatures in that in the, they have the power to identify and imitate others and sort of in a spiritual way. And, and we tend to talk about this as we frequently talk about the classics from time to time. Our heroes and our heroines, you know, their way of life become part of our own emotional substance. And in listening to these stories and these recollections and, and the things that come out about Mike, um, you know, I think there were real lessons there um, for all of us. You know, certainly, and some surprises, I did not know that he was so uh, intrigued and interested in Arctic exploration and things like that. And I love to hear. So that's a word that came out, you know, to me, adventure, you know, that that was a real, uh, among his many different abiding interests and travel. I mean, I knew that he was a great traveler. And if you're running a global organization like this, the ability to go from uh, place to place, uh, you know, without you know worrying about the details, that was a real plus for Mike. But I love that story that we heard about, being, you know, hitting three countries in one trip, Friday in Denmark, Saturday in London, and then back to the United States. And then his abiding interest in, in other people, you know, their welfare, their flourishing, their capacities. He was just interested in everything. And um, I think there's, you know, dwelling, dwelling on that and thinking a little bit about that is, is a wonderful thing to do at the end of the year. It, it is, it is. And, uh, you know, if, if we can end it on one note, when Ross was telling the story about taking the trip to uh, upper uh, upstate New York, up toward West Point, Professor Samet, and he said it was clear that Mike did his homework in, in terms of the questions that he asked, but it wasn't simply that he was prepared for meeting with the professor. He had he had read deeply. He asked questions about things that he didn't understand, so made it clear that he was going well beyond the surface. And I think when you when you think about Mike's approach to that meeting, he wasn't only prepared for the meeting; he was prepared for life. That was his approach to things. And when he approached you, 
and asked you about yourself. He knew what he was asking about. It wasn't that this was just uh, just just curiosity. He did his homework on people, and he did his homework on topics, and he showed up informed, and he showed up curious at the same time. And I think that combination of attributes is really what made him the great leader and the great person that he really was. One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back, the 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review, edited by Steve Doyle, art direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, Anne Margaret Lewis, Steve Hawkinsmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, and more. 118 pages about Sherlock Holmes. The illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork, Irene Adler drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review at wessexpress.com. As we're getting near the holiday season, you know our friends from MX Publishing have all kinds of books to offer. However, the last order date to get your books in time for the holidays was October 31st. So if by chance you miss this deadline, just know two things. One, you can certainly get all of MX Publishing's titles from other sites like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But even more interesting, there are audiobook collections available from MX Publishing. So you can get your books delivered electronically and still enjoy them in time for the holidays. You've got titles such as Memoirs from Mrs. Hudson's Kitchen by Wendy Heyman Marsaw, Sherlock Holmes and the Cornwall Affair by Johanna Reiki, Sherlock and Irene by Chris Chan, and many, many more titles there available for you if you like to have some entertainment between your ears. And as a listener of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, we are sure that you do. So just get on over to mxpublishing.com and check out the audiobook collections today. Well, I have to say, um, it's this year, this season, this has been our 15th season here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, has gone by like a blur. Are you dizzy? <laughs> no, I'm not dizzy but but boy oh boy you know i can't keep writing on these damp pads with a fountain pen because everything does sort of run together <laughs> well and we have to stop recording on these wax cylinders I, you know <laughs> uh, the the uh, the wax production has gone down here we'll have to find another way to do it yes. uh, well we we do thank you as our listener for Tuning in once again for staying with us throughout the season. If you're just discovering us, welcome. Uh, we are off to another season in 2022. It will be our 16th season. 
Broadcasting, the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere podcast. We will be back in 2022 with more authors, with more Sherlockians, with more interesting people doing interesting things in the world of Sherlock Holmes. Until then, I am the always worldly Scott Monty. And I'm basically the, your friendly neighborhood, Burt Boulder. And together, we say... The game's afoot! <laughs> the, the game's afoot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs>